welcome to Overinvested, a podcast about pop culture obsessions. I'm Gavia and this is Morgan. Hello. Uh, today we're going to be talking about Midnight Special, which is a new offbeat sci-fi drama by a director named Jeff Nichols, um, who's a really interesting guy. And we are kind of get into his career a bit more later in the episode. To begin with, Morgan, can you give general plot summary of Midnight Special, obviously without spoilers about the ending? Yeah, so we're, we will get into some spoilers about the end at the end of the podcast. We'll give you a warning um, and we'll be talking about uh, the plot in a less concrete way. So if you're going to if you don't want spoilers, turn it off now. But the essential concept of the movie is that Michael Shannon plays a uh, father of a pre-adolescent boy who has mysterious powers um, and when the film starts, we can tell that something's going on with him. But we aren't sure exactly what the deal is. And he has liberated this boy, his son, from this cult. And he and Joel Edgerton are trying to get him somewhere. Meanwhile, uh, the government, the FBI and the NSA, including an NSA agent played by Adam Driver, are attempting to track them down. Um, so it's kind of a chase movie in a weird sort of extended way. There aren't a bunch of chase scenes, but there's a whole movie kind of takes place in motion. People don't stay in the same place for very long. It's a really depressing um, road trip. Yeah, exactly. Mostly takes place at night because the this boy can't be outside during the day. He has to wear goggles because uh, when he looks people directly in the eye, he sometimes has this weird kind of like, communing vision thing with them and there's bright light and so over the course of the film you find out more about what exactly is going on with this boy and with his father and more about the sort of government situation um he can kind of speak in tongues which is why the cult was attracted to him there's some suspense there's some family drama there's some sci-fi stuff there are a lot of really interesting elements and then there's some stuff that doesn't work so we're going to talk about all of that one of the interesting things about this, I think, is that it's a fourth film from Jeff Nichols, who's this still relatively young American director who's made so three previous features, none of which have really a strong sci-fi element. His uh, second film, Take Shelter, has a, some special effects. There's some kind of weird apocalyptic stuff going on, but it's not science fiction in the way that this film is, I think it's fair to say. Um, and the sort of quality of sort of just visual direction jumps up in this one, to my mind, I think largely just because it has a much bigger budget, which is something we'll get to later. And I found it aesthetically just like a real pleasure to watch. The music is also really just like beautiful and immersive and the performances are great. Uh, yeah. I mean, I am definitely yeah. a Michael Shannon fan now. Like after watching yes, Midnight Special. you. Yes, I've been very <laughs> converted. Which I kind of Michael Shannon's kind of one of those actors who I feel like maybe people don't really think about that much. Like I don't really think about him. Film buffs, we yeah, film, film buffs, buffs film buffs. Like, <laughs> like I'm not a film buff on the film podcast, Morgan. Um, you know, of course, like the last film I saw him in was Batman v Superman as a floating corpse. But you know, uh, <laughs> but yeah, no. I, after I mean, Jeff Nichols, um, he has like this long partnership with. Michael Shannon. Shannon's been in every single one of his films. They kind of partnered up together when Jeff Nichols was casting his first film and he was in like his mid-twenties and he basically just kind of contacted Shannon out of nowhere and 
persuaded him to star in his film <laughs> and then it's been you know a fantastic true partnership ever since you know they're just filming another film right now with Shannon in the, lead, in the lead role again and he's just fantastic I really would kind of recommend if you've just watched Midnight Special to see Take Shelter if you've not seen it already we'll talk about it more later in the podcast but it's got some similar themes and it also kind of has Shannon playing a father and it's got these kind of like apocalyptic feel to it but yeah, no, the performances are obviously really strong. And like you said, like visually, it's great. One thing that I really picked up on as a costume fan were the clothes were just yeah. super, super good. Yeah, it's clearly taking um, its aesthetic from some of the sort of southern cults that have cropped up recently. Um, I mean, specifically, but... it's the, the fundamentalist Church yes. of Latter-day Saints, because they've yes. got this whole thing, which I, I really appreciated that, because I feel like it's... Um, it's like a visual cue that people wouldn't pick up on like 10 or 15 years ago, but there's been so much media attention to these um, American kind of somewhat Christian, somewhat Mormon cults where all the women are wearing these very, very like modest dresses. They've all got this puffy hair, which I feel like you'd very closely recognize. Yeah. And there was a fantastic touch, which seemed to come directly from this fundamentalist um Mormon offshoot church where they were all wearing sneakers as well so you've got all these women yeah. who have like really scrubbed clean like puffy old-fashioned hair modest dresses and like big clumpy sneakers <laughs> but also like the men are also dressed in the kind of clothes that you just don't see in films very much which is something I also noticed in Take Shelter they're not just wearing normal person American suburban outfits they're wearing sort of like worn fabric shirts that don't fit well at all and I feel like that's something you only see in an actor like Michael Shannon, who isn't like an A-list star, and you only see it in a film where they're going out of their way to not make everyone look good. Yeah, well, one of the things that I appreciate about Nichols is that he's from the South, and all of his films take place in the South, and he clearly actually understands that place and that culture, which makes sense, because it's his culture. Um, and it's presented in a very specific and real way, Um it, I mean, the sort of white Southern culture, we should say, for the most part, um, in a way that Hollywood generally has not been super interested in ever, really, but especially recently. Um, and so you're getting a sort of window into a particular world that the filmmaker really understands. And even if it's not your world or if everything isn't explicitly explained to you, it you know, you feel comfortable in his hands because because he knows what he's doing. And even in this film, which is obviously science fiction and so taking place in a slightly altered reality, I think the sort of real touches from that culture help a lot to make it feel grounded and not just like this weird movie where this kid can make a satellite fall from the sky. Slight spoiler, but uh, it's pretty cool. It's one of the best sequences of the film, I think. Very, very well done. The special effects budget helps a lot with that one. Um, so the main tension, I would say, in this film is about how much the movie is telling you and how much it wants to explain um, which is something that Nichols has talked about before. There's a great profile of him in Wired that we'll put in the show notes where he talks about this and how he's really interested in ambiguity and sort of taking the audience as far as he can to places where they don't quite understand what's going on but can still follow the film. Um, and the sort of trick with this movie being 
how much do we have to explain to you? How much do we have to show you? So for the first third in particular, but almost half of the movie, I would say, it's very unclear what the deal is with this kid and what the deal is with the cult they came from and why the government wants him. So, I mean, why the government is interested in him, this is explained very early on, is that when he sort of speaks in tongues, um, some of the things he's saying are classified government information. So this is a very young child. He doesn't seem to have any sort of cognizance of what he's saying, but the government understandably is concerned that he has some kind of weird access to this information. So for a while, I didn't really care that these things weren't being explained to me because it was still relatively early in the film and the filmmaking was strong enough that I was just really immersed in it and was kind of like, okay, I'm, I'm into this. I'm along for the ride. And then as the movie goes along, this becomes more of a problem. <laughs> um, you see, I could easily yeah. have watched very nearly an entire feature length film where I didn't know what was happening with this. Well, because yes. I was, I was, I mean, this is partly to do with the ending, which we'll discuss later in the podcast before, um, after a spoiler warning. But I feel like the atmosphere was well realized enough that I could have just watched a whole film of them not really explaining what was happening at all. Um, especially seeing as the tension of this idea of the cults and um, the kind of sci-fi element just works so well because you already have the idea of obviously your automatic reaction is to mistrust a cult that's basing um, a really you know damaging abusive like insular society on the dreams of a nine-year-old boy but also <laughs> clearly his dreams are real but that doesn't necessarily mean the cult is a good idea and like you know that's already like an interesting enough idea that you can fit an entire film into it yeah no i completely agree and i think where the movie goes wrong and then there are various ramifications of this that made me think harder about the first part of the film. So without explaining what happens, I think we can safely say that there is a concrete explanation at a certain point in the film of what is actually going on with this child. And um, I, I didn't find it very persuasive or good <laughs> as an explanation from a storytelling perspective it's a weird moment in the film. I felt I was there with a friend of mine and we both kind of, I could yeah, feel us. I had, like, what? I had the like, same reaction. <laughs> yeah. It's just, it, it's not great. And it's, it's very sci-fi E, which there's nothing inherently wrong with obviously, but the film, like my feeling about the film was that it hadn't set up an infrastructure for the reveal that it dropped however long into the movie, right? So because it had been so sort of um, resistant to telling you anything, there was no foreshadowing for what it eventually did tell you. And so then when it drops this bomb on you, you're like, what? what? Like, yeah, I mean, in that kind of in that context, one thing that I found really, I mean, not jarring because it wasn't necessarily a bad thing, but um, Adam Driver's role, he plays this NSA agent He's our kind of entry point to the government investigating this boy along with the protagonist trying to keep him safe from this cult. And Michael Shannon and Joel Edgerton and the child are all in this quite emotionally intense, very atmospheric family drama slash thriller about religion and faith and fatherhood and friendship. And then Adam Driver is playing this kind of 
government nerd who feels like he's in just like a, a cheesy blockbuster like his performance yeah. and his kind of appearance and stuff he seems like he's in Godzilla or something and like that isn't to say that I think that it was a bad performance or that Adam Driver in general is a bad actor like his performance was fine and I think he's really great in general but he felt like he was in a different film and I couldn't tell to what extent that was him not understanding what film he was in or if it was the writing of his role or like something to do with his body language or costumes or something. But it kind of started to fall down a bit for me with him. And then there was, like Morgan says, there's this point in terms of the actual storytelling where um, it takes quite an abrupt left turn and I don't think it really works in the context of the first half of the film. Yeah, I think, I thought his performance was quite good, but I agree that it just didn't feel like it was happening in the same movie. And I think a lot of that was down to the writing and I'm sure the directing, like he has a lot of sort of one line jokes, which the rest of the movie does not at all. Like, it's just not what's going on. It's not a funny film. <laughs> like, And then he kind of comes in as this weird comic relief, but it's not consistent through the movie. And it, it, there's just a very odd vibe. Yeah. It's like the other characters are real people and he's a character. In a, right. And if he were a character in a sort of like blockbuster film about yeah, it would like be a fine. weird kid with yeah. weird powers. <laughs> if he was in like E.T. <laughs> right. It would be totally fine. But he's not. He's in this other movie. And so then that is a creates a weird tension too. But what I then wound up thinking about once this sort of reveal happens and then the movie takes a different direction, like after I'd seen it and I was reflecting on it, I realized that the movie's kind of resistance to tell you anything extends to other things beyond just the central issue of the plot that I think creates some problems. So, so what you said about the cult in terms of, you know, you don't want to trust a cult, but they clearly do have some real information. So how do you deal with that? Doesn't really get explored that much over the course of the movie. Like no, the story they, they do kind of drop them, which is right. Yeah. Which actually in the wire, that wired profile of him, he says that one of his goals in the film was that as the story is kind of moving or as the characters who are running in a way move away from these characters, that the other characters will just be dropped, which is an interesting approach to the narrative, but then it does mean that there are these loose ends that don't really get tied up. And so I never really felt like I totally understood what the deal was with the cult. And that's not to say that they have to explain in great detail, like every single thing that's going on, but it felt a little fuzzy to me. And then I actually felt by the end, so like this theme of this movie is absolutely the sort of paternal relationship between Michael Shannon and his child. Like that is the heart and soul of the film. He said, um, uh, Jeff Nichols has said that it's really the movie is really kind of um, about him learning to let his own children go and the kind of allegory of that. And I even realized after seeing the film that you don't get a lot of scenes where the father and the son are really interacting with each other. Like he does a lot of grabbing the kid and then running or like so sticking him in the car. Did you feel like, did you feel like the the relationship between the father and son wasn't very well realized then? Because I thought it was incredible. I, I had some issues with it. Like I definitely found it moving to a certain extent, but by the end or there's a moment where you're supposed to find it like unbelievably moving. I was sitting in the audience and I thought, 
Like, I think I'm supposed to feel more than I'm feeling. Well, yes. I was feeling a lot more good. <laughs> yeah. We have a difference have of opinion. Difference. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, well, the um, thing is, right, that, like, I generally, in films, I never want to see kids hurt and whatever, because I'm, like, a person. Um, but, like, <laughs> I'm not a very maternal person. I don't generally um, gel with films that are all about parents and children, because I'm just, you know, I, I'm more likely to be into a film that just has child and adult characters, and they're, like, together as a team or whatever, you know. Um, but like in this film, I felt like I was the kid's dad. I was like empathizing really, really strongly. Um, and I also felt that like in Take Shelter, I felt like obviously the parental relationships in that are a lot more fully formed because that's the entire emotional core of the film. But yeah, I just had this. I was just like, I've, it's really quite rare to see a film that's not, I guess, marketed as like a women's family drama that has this level of tenderness and complexity between parents and children, particularly fathers and children, and not have it be from the perspective of a son being angsty about like a distant traumatized father or something. Because yes, these are very much true. from the perspective of the father. Yeah. And there's definitely like, there are a couple moments, actually, the I think the most meaningful lines of dialogue are in the trailer, which I hate when they do that. I didn't um, watch the trailer, so I was safe. <laughs> well, I saw it in the theater like five times. So I, there was no escape for me. Um, but I think my issue may have ha just had kind of to do with the fact that the kid felt somewhat unrealized to me. Like I would he, actually agree with that. Like I feel when I was watching it, I was simultaneously quite emotional about it and like very stressed. Cause I was like, no one get hurt, <laughs> which I had to a far more greater degree with take shelter. Um, but I was also kind of in the back of my mind, I was just thinking about the sheer number of films, both serious drama movies and horror movies and generic mainstream fantasy, where you have a special kid and the special kid is always the quiet, slightly eccentric, skinny white boy with floppy brown hair. Yes. Like they're all Harry Potters or The Omen and you never <laughs> get, there is no other example. It wasn't criticism of this film specifically, but I was more just like, it would have been improved if they, <laughs> I guess if they had like a different type of child, which sounds weird, but um, it was very much playing into kind of the general expected stereotypes of who is going to be the prophet or the chosen one or whatever. Yeah, and the kid did a very good job. Oh yeah, he was excellent. Most of what he has to do is sit in the back of the car and have goggles on. And then there are a couple moments where he gets to really act and he's excellent in those moments, but I felt like the film would have been served by maybe less NSA time <laughs> and more time where he actually got to be a person instead of an object that was being carried around by his parents, which doesn't mean that the movie couldn't still have been from their perspective, which it essentially was. Although we should say that um, Kirsten Dunst, whom I love, was playing his mother and her role essentially is to it's be minimal. a female. It's, yeah. I mean, it's like, not that, I feel like that's underselling it slightly. Like it's not a terrible character. Like it's fairly good, but this is definitely a very male heavy movie which I, I think mean, Morgan can talk about in a bit more detail because she's seen the complete works of Jeff Nichols which I haven't yeah I think this movie is a little complicated to talk about in that way because it's not explicitly sexist in the sense that no definitely not like, she's demeaned or anything but compared to the complexity of the father-son relationship she really is just along for the ride and then Joel Edgerton's character who is like an old buddy of Michael Shannon's who's helping them out. I actually found his performance the best in the movie. 
find him really compelling. And he's just very interesting and kind of a type of character you don't see in many movies. Like he's just, he didn't fulfill an expected archetype, I should say. Whereas she is just, she's basically a worrying mom. Like that's her main role. She doesn't have a lot of other distinguishing characteristics. And uh, Although her costumes she- were, once again, very good. I feel like I could, I should like shout out the costume designer, which is actually um, Eric, um, her name is like Erin Benach. And she did Drive as well. Oh, so she did yeah. Drive and she did Place Beyond the Pines. So she's really, really good at contemporary costume design. Um, and managed to make Kirsten Dunst look like a former cult member. Which is pretty impressive because she's a movie star. <laughs> yes. Um, but having seen his other films, I think I was very prone to be critical of that because he is very focused on men. Uh, Take Shelter, which I saw years ago, so I don't remember as well. You just watched it. Jessica Chastain plays Michael Shannon's wife and she's great. Um, but interestingly, in the same profile we keep referencing, he says that in every movie he kind of sets himself a new task so that he grows as a writer and director, which is, I think, a noble goal. And that his goal in that film was to write uh, a good female character because he'd never done it before, which is such a male thing to say. Like, I mean, I, I, I applaud that, quite frankly, because goodness knows he recognized a flaw and he decided to work towards solving it. And he did, which most right. filmmakers just don't even notice that they... It. He's never done it again. That is an issue. (laughs) His first film, Shotgun Stories, is essentially a movie about, like, men acting stupid. And that movie is, like, there aren't very many women in it, and they don't really have very much to do. So, again, it's not as much a case of, like, explicit sexism in that way, although there's a pretty ridiculous thing with a younger character, if I remember correctly. But it was just so exhausting in its masculinity that I found it quite tedious. And then his film before Midnight Special with Matthew McConaughey is like explicitly quite sexist in a way that I found really, really exhausting. It's about a couple of young boys who end up having this strange relationship with McConaughey, who's this man living on an island in the middle of the river. And he's fixated on his ex-girlfriend, who's played by Reese Witherspoon. And it goes in a very, very bad direction. It got good reviews, but I found it immensely frustrating. Um, And so then we got to this one, like it was definitely a step up from mud, but I kind of was just like, oh, like it, it felt to me like perhaps this is someone who, when he's not concentrating on writing a good female character, is not not thinking about that so much. Right. Like it, you just need to you just need to be doing that. And not that it has to be the focus, but um, I found that a little bit frustrating, especially since Kirsten Dunst is, I think, a really great actress and doesn't have a whole whole lot to play with. Um, in this in this movie, uh, except to be to be worried. Um, whereas Michael Shannon gets so much to do and is great doing it. Well, I mean, um, he has Jeff Nichols' views. <laughs> it's true. It's true. And what his his so his kind of role, which is interesting, is as sort of the deeply religious believer in his son's power. So the big theme underlying sort of running under this movie apart from the parent-child relationship is this very sort of Christian ethos of religious belief and doubt that again I found quite interesting up to a point and then the movie kind of collapses in on itself so it starts off obviously in a cult and then they're trying to get this kid away 
and he's, you know, viewed as a prophet or whatever. It's never explicitly made clear. But you have certain characters who are completely just like almost obsessed with him and deeply believe him. And then Joel Edgerton kind of stands in for the skeptics. Like he has been moved by him, but he's not totally sure what the deal is. He's kind is. of the realist because he's, he's the one yeah. character in the movie who hasn't kind of fully bought into the idea that this child has magical powers. He's kind of like, look, maybe we should take him to a hospital. He looks right. really sick, <laughs> which is, yeah. you know what you need to have a character who's saying that because otherwise it just becomes surreal. Right, and he was not from the cults, which is yeah. the sort of crucial, crucial difference there. But that metaphor does sort of bear out. Like he's clearly working with some Jesus stuff. Um, I felt that there was just something kind of incoherent and unresolved about it by the end. Like I wanted to know what really he was trying to say, and I, I almost don't know how to articulate this because it makes it sound like I want like full explicit answers about everything that you think about this film and your themes, like give me an essay. Yeah, and I, I mean, obviously no one, no one wants that from anything. It's a terrible idea. <laughs> no, no viewer. But it felt like this movie was almost a first draft or something. Like he had all of these ideas that were swirling around in his brain. And obviously this movie, I'm sure went through many drafts, but that it just never got to a point where it fully came together you see when i was watching it because i think before i went to see it we had like a short conversation about you know jeff nichols and his basically his ambition he's got a very clear self-made career path where he's trying to improve certain things with each new film and he's succeeding at doing it and he also very much wants to do a big budget studio feature and when i was watching this film i kept thinking you know the first half of the film is still very much like this indie drama that's quite emotionally complex and ambiguous um, and then by the end, essentially, it's evolved into a blockbuster movie. And I was like, we're literally yes. seeing this transition take place in the film. And I was kind of, <laughs> and after I yeah. saw it, it was kind of like, did he have this whole concept drawn out when he began making the film and kind of brought it round to whoever funded it and said, this is what I want as the ending? Or was this something that happened like during the funding process where someone was like, we'd like you to make the ending a bit more comprehensible? Well, this is actually this is discussed in the wire profile that I have mentioned <laughs> eighty-seven times so far in this podcast. Um, so it was from Warner Brothers from the beginning. He basically made a deal with Warner Brothers that he wanted to be someone who was working for Warner Brothers, like one of their directors, basically because they have a reputation for working with filmmakers, and you know, and they got to have new blood for their DC franchise. Exactly. Well, what's so funny about this is that they just announced they're going to start making fewer films that aren't superhero movies, basically. Um, I mean, having so... having watched this, I know I would. I think I would entrust Jeff Nichols with my beloved Swamp Thing. Yeah, let's do it. Let's you would be get a good choice. Swamp Thing. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. So the filmmaker to whom he's been compared a couple of times, just in terms of almost the career pattern or strategy, is. Christopher Nolan, who started off doing a couple of very small movies, wound up doing a sort of mid-sized one, and then got Batman Begins essentially off of that mid-sized one as like a test film. Um, and what people have been talking about a lot with this movie is that those mid-sized films don't exist so much in Hollywood anymore. Like either you can scrape together money to make 
like a tiny little indie. And so I think Take Shelter costs something like $900,000, which is nothing. And then there are movies that cost $200 million, right? Like there's not, I mean, $200 million is very high, but there are not a lot being made for $50 million anymore. So this movie, I think, was just under $20 million to make. And you can really tell the difference between it and his earlier movies. Like you, you get more bang for your buck when you've got that much money. Um, But what I found myself thinking about was that we kind of fetishize the independent film process, I think. And most of my favorite movies come out of that world. So I'm definitely guilty of this too. But sometimes you need someone to tell you when you have a stupid idea. Like, at a certain point, someone's got to say, like, mm, nobody. But <laughs> like, sometimes, you know, I feel, you know, that is definitely very true. Also, a lot of the time, the people who have the stupid idea is the studio person who is making oh, you do for it. Sure, so. <laughs> for sure. But, like, so in this uh, profile, they were talking about, like, I don't know if it was focus groups or just meetings with studio people or, or what, I can't remember. But that they were basically sort of arguing over the end of this movie and that he had had even less explanation of anything than what's in there now and that it just didn't work at all. And I'd be very curious to see that cut actually, but that he wound up putting something else in, who knows what, and that it wound up working better. But I was thinking about Nolan because Nolan's tendency is exactly the opposite of Nichols's, which is to explain everything to you in immense detail. Like the first third of Inception is just exposition, like just telling you stuff endlessly the end of interstellar quite famously is very literal and just like not it's not not great i mean i Um, will never never forget the important film about wormhole physics that ends up with time traveling poltergeists being the explanation it's beautiful exactly yeah it's great but one of the interesting things that i often think about with nolan or a filmmaker like tarantino or a writer like aaron sorkin is that they are powerful enough at this point that I strongly suspect that they are not being edited anymore, right? Like, who the hell is going to tell Christopher Nolan, like, actually, I don't think we want to let you do that because we don't think it's a good idea. Like, he just pick up and go over to Fox or Sony or whatever, right? Like, he can do whatever the hell he wants. Um, And in this case, this is small enough, like, Jeff Nichols had Final Cut, which is... I think everyone agrees a good thing, but that sometimes having some kind of structure, people saying like, okay, you have this good idea, but some of it doesn't totally work. So why don't we work on like workshopping this with you a little bit can be good. So I think it would be really fascinating to have him put on like a bigger property, which usually when I have a filmmaker, I think is interesting is the last thing I want to have happen because I want them to be doing their own stuff. But I think it would be fascinating to see what he did with something where he actually had less creative control, because I think it might curb his bad impulses a little bit. Like this movie, I just think it needed someone to be saying like, no, that that doesn't work. So I guess we should, after that comment, I guess, jump into <laughs> what doesn't work about it. Okay, uh, so I'm, I'm assuming that at this point, anyone who's still listening either has seen the film or you don't care about spoilers. So I'm going to just give like a quick summary of what happens um, at the end. So kind of perhaps two thirds of the way through, 
the the son makes the decision that he's going to go out during daylight, which up until now has been this incredibly dangerous thing. It cures the apparent illness he's had for most of the film. And he also has this revelation, which visually is kind of depicted as this stunning like burst of light, like a huge bubble that kind of emanates out from him. And then when he gets back to the motel room where his mother and Joel Edgerton are with his father, he kind of explains that he is he is a being from another dimension. He's basically like, there are these people who live in a world above ours and I need to be with them. And at this point, first of all, I was like, it's very clear that this film is going to end with this child joining these creatures in another dimension, never seeing his parents again. But for yes. some reason, it takes about 10 minutes for the film to kind of, for the characters to acknowledge this, even though I felt like yeah. they already it's had so acknowledged it. Yeah, which is it's like, even- it was... Like, it's pretty clear, I think, almost from the beginning of the movie that this child is is going somewhere. Like, yeah, I mean, I was I was I didn't really think about it in the first half, but like, yeah, anyway. So like then then the latter half of the film is still about them trying to get him to this location, which he's been dreaming about. And he has the coordinates and he needs to be there on a certain day. And um, he's taken by the NSA at one point and then manages to escape using his powers and some help from Adam Driver. And then kind of the final sequence is the point where it gets really blockbustery. So the child and his mother, Kristen Dunst, um, go to the coordinates while the father and Joel Edgerton go on like basically a full-on car car chase to distract the authorities. And when the boy arrives at the destination, um, instead of it kind of being a rather low-key or ambiguous ending, which is kind of what would have fit totally a lot better with the rest of the film, uh, this giant sparkling city manifests um, and it's not just manifesting near him you see it showing up all over basically the northern well like, I think that's North when America. the bubble of light actually yeah. there's this yeah there's there's yeah. a huge bubble of light which um, appears again then which kind of it, it goes outward and then everyone who's inside this bubble of light for like hundreds and hundreds of miles starts seeing the buildings in this other dimension and like at this point I had like a number of problems with this. Just in terms of storytelling, I don't feel like it fit with the tone of the rest of the film and I don't think it was necessary to see this city. But in terms of the way the other the other world was designed, I <laughs> basically I thought it was terrible because you have the, you have the, it was basically every sci-fi city ever. Like the two things it really strongly reminded me of were the futuristic planet in Guardians of the Galaxy. Um, it looks like an architectural sketch, like these kind of silver and white buildings. Um, they're very beautiful, but they're kind of, they they all are of a very similar style. They don't necessarily look alien. And also you don't see any people on them. So it's this very clean kind of sterile landscape. And it doesn't, like we're supposed to think of it as looking kind of impressive and angelic and utopian. It's hard to imagine like a nine-year-old boy be going there and being like, this is great. Yes. <laughs> and like, and it also like having just seen Tomorrowland a few months ago. It reminded me a great deal of Tomorrowland, which is a genuine full-on blockbuster film. It's um, It was inspired by a Disney theme park ride. It starred George Clooney, and it also has some similar themes. It's kind of like if if this film is Donnie Darko, that would be like if someone tried to make like a blockbuster remake of Donnie Darko. <laughs> uh, and it's about this girl who is given a little badge which allows her to see Tomorrowland, which is this futuristic city in another dimension that no one can see unless they have the badge. And the people who are given the badge are young, gifted children and teenagers. And 
I hated that film. I I really, <laughs> I really strongly hated it. Like for the mo- for the most of that film, it was kind of, it was like a fine, reasonably entertaining family adventure story. And I liked that it had a female lead who was an engineer and did loads of cool adventures. And George Clooney is always, you know, is charming. But like the premise of this film was that only the gifted special kids get to go to this city where they will save the world from everyone else who is stupid and pessimistic and dumb and just spends their life worrying about the end of the world without doing anything. You know, so it it was this horrible intellectual snobbery at the end of the film was like the basic message. I mean, I'm kind of getting off topic here. But anyway, that type of aesthetic was like very close to the city we saw in this film. And I feel like if you're if you are making something which is meant to be like an intimate family drama, which examines American cults and belief and faith and that sort of thing, it shouldn't have like an extensive CGI sequence at the end where you have a montage of like people on oil rigs being like, my God, I can see into another dimension. What does this mean? <laughs> so, yeah, it really did feel like it was turning into another film at the end. Well, yeah. And. I think what I was getting at earlier about there not being an infrastructure set up, right, for his, when he says, like, I'm from another world on top of this one, like, I knew it was going to get ex- quite explicitly sci-fi. Um, and I'd read some reviews that had said that the end of the film didn't really work, but I, you're just not, you're just not expecting that based on what you've experienced in the movie so far. And then when at the end, it really, really goes there, it, you just haven't been prepared for that. It doesn't totally fit at all. And it is generic. And if the whole movie is kind of supposed to be about belief, right? And the this father having this absolute belief in his son and he will do anything he possibly can for him because he loves him so much and he totally believes everything that this kid says to him, right? Um then the culmination of the movie is all of this stuff being made completely physical, at least for a brief period of time. So everyone can see it. And like, I'm not a religious person, but it seems to me that that kind of goes against what that theme should be getting at. Right. Like, yeah, I agree. Like they should just believe him. Like if that's the movie that you're trying to make, then what's kind of sublime about religious belief is that you don't need to see it. And that it's kind and then in terms of a, from a filmic perspective, it's like when they show the aliens, or the monsters or whatever, you, it can't work. <laughs> it almost never works. Yeah, the, the equivalent of like Prometheus where it's like, we're going to explain where alien came from. Right. Like it's just, it's whatever you are imagining when you're imagining the monster is so much scarier than what they can possibly show you. And in this, it, it's not exactly the same because it's not like you've spent a bunch of time imagining this other world, <laughs> but the idea that there could be another world where there are these other beings and then to have it look like, like skyscrapers, this is like, okay, like that doesn't seem that exciting like if this kid's supposed to effectively be jesus or whatever that's slightly he's just going to like it looks kind of like maybe dubai (laughs) like (laughs) Like he's gone to space dubai (laughs) that doesn't 
doesn't seem like a great outcome. So a huge amount of what you're presented with is like proof that he is special and that people want to follow him is that he has these moments of communing with people by looking at them. Yeah. And with this sort of burst of light and sometimes it seems dangerous and sometimes it seems like it's really meaningful. It's because the, the visual thing is such a huge component of the movie. The, like the problem is that they can't show you what is being experienced by the people involved. Right. right. So like it, that it's good that they didn't try because that would have been a disaster. <laughs> like there was a movie I saw last year, Embrace of the Serpent, which is a great foreign film, but they at the end try to like show a dream vision thing. And I was just like, no, only 2001 ever pulled this off. Like just, just stop. Don't do it. But if so much of it is this kind of like religious belief thing and you can't, feel that just because of the nature of kind of what film can and can't do. I think that hampers the movie a lot. And we actually were, were saying that I think it would almost have been better as a book, which is weird because so much of what the, the film does is very filmic, but that if it had been a novel and this is just sort of silly, silly talk because of course it wasn't, but that there would have been so much more opportunity to explore so much of the world building stuff that the movie just doesn't seem interested in. And to get at that feeling of like what this kid really can do that I don't think the movie fully expresses. And so I just felt like there was so much that um, was kind of there in, in the sci-fi stuff and the sort of religion stuff, but that didn't completely, you know, get to a point where I I understood what the movie was completely... I mean, I guess I understood what it was trying to say, right? Like, parents love their children and have to let them go. And also, like, religion is, is good. But, <laughs> but it wasn't in a way that really worked for me by the end, I guess is what I'm ultimately trying to say in a very long-winded fashion. Um... Yeah, so I think that that is about all that we have to say about that, unless you have any further comments. Um, I do not believe so, other than that I would strongly recommend Take Shelter, and also that I found it painfully stressful to watch. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I really feel like I should watch it again. It's It's been a while, and I... I was surprised. I felt a little guilty. I said to you, like, you got to watch this movie. It's great. I don't remember it that well. And then you kept emailing me being like, I'm so stressed out right now. Like, I mean, I feel like what's going to happen is you're going to watch it and then psychoanalyze why I was stressed out, so stressed <laughs> out by it. Because I was just like, the kids aren't safe. The wife isn't safe. The dad isn't safe. I want them to be safe. <laughs> I do remember the sort of like apocalyptic stuff stressing me out from a, uh, a global warming angle. It's not a, it's not a like pleasant movie to watch but it's really good i think it's the best of his four films so far um and he has I, mean, a... I, I look forward to his other movies in future because i feel like jeff nichols and i share a very specific neurosis about the apocalypse which he's depicting in a non-literal <laughs> way that is clearly getting to me on some unrealized emotional level <laughs> yes 
Uh, and he has another movie coming out this year, actually, called Loving, starring Joel Edgerton again and Ruth Nega, which is about, I believe, the interracial marriage case that went all the way to the Supreme Court that legalized interracial marriage in the United States, uh, which I'm quite excited about. So it will be very interesting to see that because that's, again, a sort of Southern story, but very different from what he's done so far. And that's another, that's an independent film, not a, not a Warner Brothers thing. So... And I'm excited to see Joel Edgerton in a film where I know that it's him, because I watched the whole <laughs> of this movie thinking that Joel Edgerton's character was played by Sam Worthington. And then afterwards, very knowledgeably to my friend, I was like, gosh, Sam Worthington was fantastic in this. Do you remember when we saw Avatar and it was just really bad? And then I kind of came home and said the same thing to Morgan. And she was just like, you're an idiot. It's Joel Edgerton. <laughs> and I had to Google pictures of them to make sure I could visually tell the difference. <laughs> well, what was so funny was that the friend I went with we were talking about it afterwards and like we have both seen him in multiple things and she said the whole time she was like i was trying to remember his name and i knew it wasn't sam worthington but that was the only name i could come up with because they look so similar <laughs> so you aren't alone although right. she didn't actually make the mistake but i mean i think someone needs to do a film where joel edgerton jeremy renner and sam worthington all play characters who are like criminals and get mistaken for each other or something <laughs> Yeah, pitch that to Hollywood. Yeah. It's some blockbuster. <laughs> yeah, Sam Worthington is like a convenience store clerk. Uh, Joel Edgerton is a librarian and Jeremy Renner's the real criminal. And they're all they're all mistaken for each other during a car tra- a car chase across America. <laughs> uh, I would watch it. Yeah. I would watch that film, no question. Uh, all right, so next week we will be back talking about season two of Unbreakable Kimmy Schmidt which we are very excited for. Which Morgan is very excited for. I am moderately interested in it because... Okay. I, <laughs> I, am, <laughs> I, I enjoyed the first season of Kimmy Schmidt, but I find Tina Fey, shall we say, problematic. So we will have a lot to talk about next week, yeah, I think. Indeed. Um, if you enjoyed this episode, we would really appreciate it if you could rate and or review us on iTunes. It helps us find new listeners. And otherwise, you can find us on Twitter at OverinvestedPod, on Tumblr at OverinvestedPodcast. Our website is at OverinvestedPodcast.com. And we are on iTunes, Stitcher, and SoundCloud. Thanks for listening. We'll see you guys next week. <laughs>